0: The planet's puppet masters almost surely have a plan. There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man. But until you've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view,
1: Yourselves, Higher Side Chatters, going deep from the Sunshine State. I'm Greg Carlwood. And if we look at the major themes and insights from a ton of different forms of outlier information across all known time and space, including psychedelic experience, remote viewing, channeled material, the commonalities of indigenous cosmologies, messages from the alien contactee experiencers, the data around past life and out of body experiences, messages in crop circles, most spiritual traditions, and yes, even the Bible. We are reminded that separateness is an illusion and we're all part of the whole, that we repeat lives to work through karma and some sort of soul-based learning process aimed at total reintegration, and that from this earthly vantage point, we seek some ascension or upward movement towards a lighter, less dense, and more enjoyable dimension. When you get past the flavor text, that seems to be the gist of what the wise, ancient and insightful ones have to tell us about the human experience. But many of these works also fold in material about Atlantis, previous rounds of civilization, the prospect of a planet X, cyclical cataclysm, whatever the asteroid belt once was, and the idea that humanity as we know it might be transplants from some other planetary cosmic garden. Is there any memory stored in DNA, the collective unconscious, or some sort of source field? And can it be trusted? Because those who extract things out of it would be the first to say, it gets quite weird. Well, way back in the much simpler world of 2015, Bob Frizzell graced us with his presence to talk about the material in his book, Nothing in This Book is True, but it's exactly how things are. In a wild two-hour breakdown of the lessons from the known Ascended Masters, the story that's told of humanity's original Martian homeworld, and a detailed deep dive into the Lumeria-Atlantean saga from A Time Forgotten, today he makes a return to talk about his latest book, Catching the Ascension Wave, everything you need to know about the coming Great Awakening. And I should say that Bob is also the founder of the Breath Alchemy Technique and has been a teacher of breathwork for more than 35 years. Almost as long as I've been alive. Now let's get into it. The Ascension Wave Surfer, Fourth Density Forecaster, and Capstone Cabal Critic. Bob, it's been a while. Welcome back.
2: Greg, that's just an awesome introduction. I I love it. Let's Uh, go. Let's go for it. Thanks so much for that. That was just great.
1: (laughs) Of course. I try to set people up for the material we're going to get into, and we are going to be talking about some wild threads today. Ascension other alien races, the moon, all kinds of stuff. And I do think part of the reason this stuff sounds so out there is that we've been conditioned to think about our world a certain way in that it's been the same for millions of years and big changes don't really happen suddenly and the whole evolution thing. But I see a better case made all the time that we had previous rounds of civilizations on the Earth that were more advanced The cabal has technologies that they've kept secret. And even the CIA classified and censored that book, The Adam and Eve Story, A History of Cataclysms, which outlines sudden radical changes to the earth. So I'm here for it, I'm open-minded. But to get this started, let's talk about what 3D reality and the physical universe seem to be for. I've heard you say that when you cross compare many cosmologies, They can seem different, but at least 35 of them hit on some major themes that do talk about the same story and the same function for reality. Let's kick it off
2: there if we could. Yeah, they certainly do. You know, if we just ask the question about the nature of Ascension itself, I mean, an obvious question to ask is, is it real? (laughs) And I would say in a word, yes, it is. Because as you point out, there's references to Ascension in at least 35 different civilizations. You know, you can call it their religious myths or whatever you want, but we speak of the prophecies of Jesus, at least some of us do, but it's only consistent with that of 34 other cultures, and the prophecies of Jesus appeared everywhere in the Quran, the Old Testament, certainly the Native American spiritual tradition has it, the Celtics and the Druids have it, the Hindu scriptures, well, they're very similar. Because they talk about the Simvarta fire, and that's the fire at the end of the age, and they also call it the Yuga fire. And they say that that comes from the sun, and it causes rainbow colors in the sky. Oh, I wonder what that could be. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll find out.
1: <laughs> yeah, we might. So I like that you are not attached to any one religion or You know, box, we could say, you actually study a lot of them and take the pieces that seem congruent and you stack them up in aggregate to form a modern interpretation, I would say, of what a lot of these myths and cosmologies and cultures have said. And this is where we kind of talk about the galactic superwave and ascension trigger. And this is. Pretty wild stuff. I mean, I get more and more comments from people who do say that they feel some kind of shift. And we've talked about how the cabal seems to be in a rush to enact more control with all the agenda 2030 stuff, as if they're trying to beat some sort of cosmic clock. So maybe there is something to it, but help make the case to people that this ascension wave is not only real, but it is coming.
2: Yeah, no question about it. And it probably seems, you know, far out there to the extreme. And it couldn't possibly be true because life goes on. But that's just not the case at all. What I'd like to do, Greg, is just go back to how this all began for me. And I look back in the year about 1990, and it started coming to me that there's missing information that I need to be aware of. Now, I had no idea, absolutely no idea what that missing information might be, but I was open-minded, and I realized that I had something that I began to discover that most people do not, and that's a burning desire. And what I mean by a burning desire, you could call it 100% commitment. And I was committed, in this case, to finding out just what that missing information might be and just take it wherever it led me without any presumptions or whatever. And out of that, one thing I do want to say is that I did develop a very, very astute BS meter so that if people are throwing disinformation and lies and propaganda at me, I've gotten pretty darn good, (laughs) pretty darn good at smoking that out. I'm not naive. I don't buy into just anything. But I will say back in 1990, a journey began that was just extremely exciting and exhilarating And I'm so happy to report that that excitement and acceleration and that total burning desire continues to today. And so I just throw that in there because one of the things I began hearing about very early, in fact, before 1990, goodness sakes, I first began to hear about the Hopi prophecies, I believe it was in 1979. And then a couple of years later, it started coming to me in the form That I just couldn't deny, because I had enough of a background where the Hopi prophecy is telling us about all sorts of changes that are coming. They're talking about a transition from the fourth into the fifth world. They talk about the day of purification. They're talking about the ascension, putting it, you know, in their own terminology. So I didn't fully grasp it back in 1979. It was just coming to me in pieces. But the less than exciting part was all the stuff I was hearing about Earth changes, including entire continents moving up and down and pole shifts, and a lot of people were talking about this sort of thing. And I, at the time, I didn't really know what to make about all of that, but I stayed with it, and it just all began to come together. And so I'm not here as a prophet of doom and gloom, quite to the contrary. I say that, well, On a personal note, I'm totally an optimist, and I see that everything is unfolding exactly as it should in the great cosmic scheme of things. The road is going to get a little bumpy. It's already a little bit bumpy, but I think it's going to get a lot more bumpy in the next year or so. But that's necessary in the great awakening process, because I will just simply say there is a great awakening that we are in the midst of and is on the horizon because we ain't seen nothing yet. Now, you speak of this great cosmic galactic superwave, as I like to call it, this enormous infusion of higher dimensional energy that's coming in. It's called the galactic superwave by the Secret Space Program. And I probably just threw something out there that we might want to dig into a little bit deeper at some point. But anyway, this galactic superwave, as they like to call it, is dramatically raising the vibratory rate of the planet and everyone on it no one is going to escape this and so the question is are we able to catch the wave catch the ascension wave as i like to call it and in so dramatically increase our vibratory rate and in so doing just be very much the collective catalyst that allows the planet to become lit from within so we can move individually and collectively into the higher worlds and we'll continue to unpack this as we go on but my research tells me that this is very real stuff. And I think that it's great we've got two hours. Hey, we can really we can really do a pretty good job of diving into this. Yes. So thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity.
1: <laughs> of course, of course. And as you say, you were hearing stuff back in the 70s about radical earth changes and pole shifts. Of course, we went through the 2012 Mayan prophecy era. And These are the kind of things that make me skeptical. I think there's just something in the minds of men that want to believe that in their lifetime, they're going to see the big show. Like it's all coming down. It's like, it's not just going to be the end of my life. The whole story ends with me. I think maybe it's something about the ego. I don't know. But I grew up hearing about the rapture and the second coming and the apocalypse. And then of course, people talk about astrological phases and we're entering into the new age and everything's going to radically change. And we also heard about indigo kids. They were the first ones to get this cosmic upgrade, this third strand (sighs) DNA. And and now I'm like, I look at the, the younger kids. I'm like, there's nothing elevated about their mind state. Maybe they've just been captured by another one of the cabal's tools, the little cell phone screen. But this is always being talked about. And sometimes things like the yugas, they are long arcs, massive cycles that extend many, many lifetimes. So one thought might be, well, why should I care about the galactic superwave unless it's going to be coming in the next couple of years? And I don't know if we could even put that kind of number on it, but I guess I would respond to that thought that might be going on in people's minds with, well, If the earth is a soul school type of thing, and we do live recurring lifetimes, human lives, well, you should care because you're working on an evolution of your core being through multiple lifetimes. And even if you only get a piece of this knowledge now and the techniques on how to upgrade yourself, you can carry it on in the next life. Eventually, something seems like it might be coming based on all these different Things that people throw out about the end of the line. Well, I guess talk to us a little bit more about the timing of this galactic superwave and what it actually means for people listening.
2: Good. We've been hearing about it ever since the 1950s, various ET races coming in and doing their best to try and tell us hey, guys, there's some big changes that are going to be going on on your planet here. And so I devoted an entire chapter in my book. It's called Contact in the Desert. And, you know, the question, well, the ET thing, is that real? Well, yes, it is real. <laughs> yeah, it's real. Uh, I don't question that one bit. And in the 1950s, like I said, they've been telling us since then that we've been going going to go into a new zone of energy in our galaxy, and it's going to transform Our sun, our entire solar system, and every aspect of our lives is going to be changed. And there was a guy by the name of W.B. Smith, a Canadian radio communications engineer. This is again back in the 1950s. And he was actually hired by the Canadian government to go into and take a deep dive look at this whole UFO and ET phenomenon. And he even had pieces of the wreckage from Roswell in 1947. And he heard the accountings of pilots and different stories, but he began to realize that, well, you know, I can't really dig too deep if that's all I've got. And he began to realize that what would be very useful would be to come in contact with actual ET contactees, people who have actually taken a ride on the ships and conversed with these people, be it telepathic or whatever. And so, Really a great way to do it was back in the 1950s, there was an annual UFO conference in Joshua Tweed, California, and it was a big deal because typical attendance at that conference was about 5,000 people, many of whom claimed to be ET contacts. And so W.B. Smith went there and he listened to these, and you know, these are very interesting stories and everything, but he began to wonder, well, but is it really real? And so what he did was he devised a 100-part questionnaire where if you were who you said you were, you would tend to answer these questions, respond to them in one certain way. And if you weren't, you would not pass. And so it worked. It worked wonders for him. And he began to really tune in and to trust the people who said that they were contactees because they answered the questions in the appropriate manner. And so they all had very, very similar stories to say, the essence of which is that there is a great wave, a cosmic dust cloud, it's also called, (laughs) that's coming in, and it's going to impact everyone and everything throughout our solar system. And that what it does is it acts as a great catalyst, causing people to wake up and to come out of the deep slumber that we've been in for a long, long time. So one of the More interesting aspects of the experiences of W.B. Smith was he made contact with an author, a very well-known author back in the day, a guy by the name of George Hunt Williamson. And so George Hunt Williamson was in fact a contactee, and these two collaborated on a very, very deep level. And so, being an author, George Hunt Williamson wrote a number of books. His classic, I think, would be called Road in the Sky. And this is where he details this. And it's not just him. What he's getting is all the information that is coming from these ET contactees, and they're all saying the same thing. And then he—and I'm really glad he did, because I'm not a student of the Bible, but he certainly was at least enough to put in some really great biblical quotes that detail the total transformation, the changes that we, along with the earth— Well, not only us, but the entire solar system must and will make, because we're on a journey from the third density reality that we experience and live as our day-to-day life into a world that is so vast and upgrade that it's almost beyond our ability to imagine it. We're talking about nothing less than the ascension from third to fourth density. And so the Bible calls this the quickening of the Spirit, and they go on to say that flesh and blood cannot make it through that our bodies have to be transformed into light bodies in order to, as they would call it, enter the kingdom of heaven, or as we would call it, the kingdom of the fourth density. And they go on to say, these biblical codes, that this change will happen in a moment. And it just goes on from there. Really, it details just about every bit of what is most likely to happen, including some of the earth changes. The biblical codes do cover that. And it just goes into and covers all the details. You know, they just make the point that flesh and blood cannot make it through. You have to change into a light body and that you have to be willing to raise your vibratory rate, raise your consciousness. Basically, to bottom line simplify it, it's the shift from what's in it for me for what's in it for the greater good, or as the law of one calls it, the shift from how do they call that service to self where you're really not considering anything other than you know your own best interest and you don't much care about how many people you stomp on and try and control in order to get what you want that's going to get you nowhere fast that's going to keep you on the karmic wheel for many many lifetimes so what they talk about is that the great awakening is a shift from what's in it for me to the shift for being committed to the greater good and now when you begin to look at life as though you're just a smaller part of a whole and that what is the spirit the eternal the one spirit that moves through all life in me want for the greater good how does it want me to put myself out there in a way that reflects itself in the greatest good of the whole now you're beginning to burn off karma And now you're beginning to prepare yourself because you're raising your vibratory rate and you are beginning to align yourself with the great changes that we've been told ever since the 1950s are coming.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I am open to the light body. I think anyone who's had an out-of-body experience would be because you realize your consciousness is largely intact. Your inner monologue is there, but yet you are outside of your body. And to me, light body and soul are pretty equatable terms. So I could see something like a process where we must be in the light body to be something that just wipes out life on the earth. And we just go into our soul selves because I guess I just don't know what an upgrade to fourth density really means in practical terms, because as you say, you can't do it with flesh and blood. Well, that to me says, okay, the soul, the soul will go through this process and reintegrate with the great source, perhaps, I guess. But what would we look at in nature to show us an example of something being, quote, upgraded to, quote, a fourth density? Because it seems unprecedented. There doesn't seem to be a lot of examples to look at in the way nature and reality works to be like, oh, it'll be something like X, Y, or Z. Are there any examples we can point to? Because I think everybody who's been in this space for a while has heard the terms upgrade to fourth density, but I don't know if anybody really has had it explained.
2: Well, there's a lot of things I can say, and I'll begin by suggesting that Nikola Tesla, way back in the day, I suspect easily he's the most brilliant scientist we've ever had. In my view, he is anyway. And what he said is that if you want to understand the universe, you have to think of it in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. So energy, frequency, and vibration. And so everything is energy, and it's vibrating at a certain rate. Now, when you and I, and you see that includes you and I individually and collectively. And when you and I are stuck in the lower vibratory centers, you know, of when our fear takes us over, if we're at the effect of the fear, if we, haven't, if we haven't taken any steps to master it, if we're still victimized by it, if you will, and not only the fear, but the frustration, the anxiety, the guilt, the shame, and all the stuff that we get saddled with in this lifetime. Uh, perhaps you have some insight as to what I mean here. It's something that we've all picked up a significant amount of baggage. Now, when that stuff is activated, I mean, if your fear takes over, just for example, you are now vibrating at a very dense rate. And so if you go back to the quote of everything is a frequency, energy, and vibration, now the body in its natural state, the energy in the body wants to be in motion. But the energy gets all jammed up when we're at the effect of our fears and our limitations and our frustrations and our anxieties. And so now the energy is just sitting there. It's just stuck. It's just stagnant. And that's what I mean when I say that when we're at the effect of that, we're vibrating at a very dense rate. Now, you know that when you experience moments of joyfulness and glee, I mean, you're a new dad. You must have had mm-hmm. some <laughs> some experience in, in that area very yeah. recently. You know, it's a joyful experience. Well, when you're feeling joy and unconditional love, I mean, goodness sakes, you're, you know, look at your family and there's reason right there. Now you're vibrating at a much higher rate, right? I mean, could you verify that? Sure.
1: I don't know how to measure it, but it feels symbolic that, yeah, I could say so.
2: Well, you don't have to measure because it's all in how you feel. That's enough measurement right there. When you're stuck in fear and limitation and frustration and anxiety and guilt and shame, you don't feel very darn good. Or if you do, you're just fooling yourself. (laughs) But when you're in the midst of a joyful experience, you are feeling good. And so that's one thing about us. We do like to feel good. But a lot of people don't really know how to get there. It just happens kind of haphazardly. But I would suggest that that's the transformation that we're in process of going through, whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, learning how to align with the various energies of the universe and in our bodies, because our body is a microcosm. It's a fully functioning hologram of the whole. And so increasing our vibratory rate is fundamental. Now, the whole thing about the light body, It reminds me of the guy who wrote the book Saved by the Light, Danian Brinkley. And that book has only sold about 22 million copies, so you might say it's gone around the block a few times. Danian Brinkley is the guy who died four times, yet he's still alive. And so what he had was four near-death experiences. The first one was way back in the day in 1975, when he was struck by lightning while he was talking on the telephone And the telephone just melted in his hands, and he had the experience of a lifetime, whether he wanted to or not. And for 28 minutes, he was clinically dead. And so he was able to, in his soul body or in his light body, if you will, to look down and experience and see himself, his body that was in pretty rough shape, to say the least. You get struck by lightning like that and can only imagine. So he was gone on the other side for 28 minutes. And even though it was only 28 minutes, goodness sakes, it was a lifetime worth of experience for him. He went through what is called the panoramic life review, where in a flash, every single thing that he ever experienced, not only from his point of view, but also from the other person's point of view, anything and everything that he had ever done, every experience in his life. It all came flashing right back at him. Now, it was particularly interesting in Danyan's case because he was not, in his own words, he was anything but a model person. He was confused. He was an angry kid. He must have been in a pretty constant state of upset. He said in his school in South Carolina that they had a demerit system. And if you had, I don't know, just a small number of demerits, I forget the number he said. I guess your parents would be called in and you'd have to go visit the principal together. And if you got a few more, you'd probably be expelled from school for a few days. And I think he said it was in excess of 150 demerits in the first three days of school. He said, I was that kind of a student. (laughs) I mean, you can just imagine. We had some rowdies back in the day when I was in school, but nothing like that. And it didn't get any better because he joined the military and he became a trained assassin. And so he got to experience every bit of this, what it was like from his parents' point of view, what it was like from the people he assassinated and from their loved ones, from their point of view, all of that in the panoramic life review. And he came back totally transformed because he realized, you and I, we don't get away with anything. We might think we do, but the law of karma says, uh uh-uh, what goes around comes around and it's going to come right back and it's going to hit you. And if it doesn't do it during your lifetime, it's for sure going to do it during the panoramic life review, not to punish you, but just to give you an opportunity to wake up enough so you can begin to resolve some of the karma so you can become ascension ready. Uh, Whoops, threw that word ascension out again. So that to me is just a fascinating story. Now talking, before I move on, talking about how he came back totally transformed, he realized Hey, the law of karma is very real stuff. And for all the people that he assassinated, he knew it was all going to come back to him. And so he had an enormous karmic debt to pay. And so he became a hospice volunteer. And he sat in front of dying veterans to the tune of many thousands of them and was with many hundreds, if not a few thousand veterans, the moment they died, the moment they passed over. And so he established his own. He called it the Twilight Brigade, I do believe. And so, you know, you speak of a guy coming back totally transformed. I can confirm that. I can verify that. Back in the day, I met him. We were both featured speakers at a number of whole living expos and other conferences, too. And, I mean, Daniel Brinkling was just this shining ball of light. I mean, it's like he was happy and present in a way that at first glance, you just wonder, I mean, is this guy for real? I mean, nobody's that much of a shining ball of light, you know? What's going on here? But you get to know the guy a little bit, and I begin to realize, yeah, it's very truly, absolutely so for him. And then I taking a look at his book and digging deeper, I began to realize just exactly why. So with that said, there is no such thing as death. But what I'm talking about here is that when you go through ascension, you bring your body with you. And unlike leaving the body back as Danian was able to report that he was able to look down and see his body, but he did come back. So he's still alive today. Goodness sakes, the healing that he went through and the trauma that he had to put up with, it was a big deal coming back. I mean, he was paralyzed. It was, you can just go on and on with that, but it's quite an amazing story. But to really cut to the bottom line, Greg, what I want to make is that Number one, there is no death. Life continues forever and ever. The soul is eternal and it is immortal. But ascension, you bring your body with you. And so we become not only immortal in the soul sense, but also immortal in the physical sense. And we'll continue to unpack this. I appreciate your skepticism. I question you if you didn't have a few doubts. (laughs) It makes it more interesting.
1: Well, (laughs) I I am on your page, broadly speaking. I try not to get too... Uh, into the nitty gritty details because some things seem unknowable. But I do lean towards this being a real thing, kind of an individualized process, because I can't be responsible for others' progress or, you know, what's the point of the one source fracturing out so much if I have to also be responsible for other people? So, but I guess you're saying it's both. It's an individualized process to be ready and then a cosmic... Vibratory wave to bump the ones up who are sending out the right notes, bumping them up an octave. If you're playing the chords of ego or anger or bitterness, that's not the divine music. Go back and retune your instrument. And I just wanted to talk about something you said with war. I never thought about war this way, but you could say that sending thousands of people to war is a way for the elite to burden us with a lot of negative karma. If their role in the system, if the cabal's role is to keep this knowledge secret and to keep us trapped here, well, sending a lot of young men to war to kill each other, that's going to cause a lot of cosmic baggage. And this also kind of factors in. I didn't, didn't even plan to talk about the COVID era or anything like that, but I've heard a few people making the case that you know what people got in the shot might actually be the thing that is making them sick and then eventually maybe with 5G or something it'll all be activated you know that theory is out there in many different forms and people always respond well that doesn't make any sense cuz why would the elite kill off the most loyal you would think the elite would kill off the rebels and reward the obedient sheeple and it's like, yeah, but not if this is a soul school, if the role of the elite is to be a opposing force and our responsibility is to rise above certain things, then no, our discernment would be rewarded in the greater game and people's obedience to the cabal would be the punishment. It's like, nope, you didn't learn. You didn't learn how to trust yourself and trust the truth. You gave into fear. You did something based on your fear. And now you got to come back again. And the elite caught you. So I don't know. I guess I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the cabal and, and how we interface with them and their role in this whole system, because it seems like if they have this knowledge, they would want to be working on their own ascension process. And they're kind of cutting off their nose to spite their face by screwing up all of ours, because they're also going to be stuck here. They're not going to vibrate at the right frequency.
2: No, they aren't. Boy, we're all over the map, aren't (laughs) we? Uh, I know. I threw (laughs) a lot
1: of stuff out there, but it's like, what's the point of holding the knowledge if you aren't going to work on the process from the elite perspective, the cabal perspective?
2: Okay. So what I'd like to do is to just go back to the beginning and, What I would like to say is that there was a time, in fact, I gave it a whole chapter. The chapter is called When We Were One. If you go back to the very early beginnings of the universe, there was no veiling, meaning that the people in all the galaxies and all the planets were in full awareness of their intimate connection to the one infinite creator. They were aware on all details, on all levels, that they were a fully functioning hologram of the one spirit that moves through all life everywhere. Now, what do I mean by a fully functioning hologram of the whole? Well, we know that if you take a hologram and shine a laser through it, what you're gonna get is a very interesting looking 3D image. And we also know that if you take that hologram and cut it into you know, as many pieces as you want, let's just say four equal pieces, but it could be a thousand pieces, but let's go with four. If you take the hologram and cut it into four equal pieces and then shine a light through each of those four pieces, you're going to get a quarter-sized version of the whole image. So the whole image is still in the quarter-sized piece that you cut it into. And so that's what I mean when I say that you and I are a fully functioning hologram of the one infinite creator. And back in the day, in the early days of the universe, there was no veiling, so everyone was in full awareness of that. And you might think that, well, wouldn't that be fantastic? And the law of one, and by the way, the law of one is a document that, you know, at some point, I would like to talk a little bit more about what it is and where it came from, and why I consider it to be important, and why I use it as a source fairly consistently throughout the book. But the law of one says that No, this was not great. In fact, it was an absolute disaster because people were just lying around totally blissed out lifetime after lifetime. There was no creativity. There was no incentive. There was no reason to grow, no reason to learn. I mean, if you're in full awareness of who you are, you're in total bliss. But after a while, that total bliss gets kind of boring and gets stagnant, and there's no growth. And so it was realized that. The universe is not working. And the solution was to put a veiling over each individual at such a degree that each person now had virtually no awareness of their intimate connection to the whole and just began to see themselves as separate beings, disconnected from the whole and not connecting the dots and so on. Now, the interesting thing is that it started working because what it allowed for was creativity and the incentive to grow and to learn. And so good things like music and art began to appear for the first time. So that was the positive aspect of it. But it also allowed for negativity to begin to appear. See, when we were in total bliss, in full awareness of our intimate connection to all that is, there was no negativity. I mean, you know, we were just all lying around acting like spoiled rich kids with, you know, everything handed to us. (laughs) One big hippie orgy,
1: huh? Uh,
2: So uh, now (laughs) negativity is allowed to appear because even though the negative or the dark side is a fully functioning hologram of the whole, if it doesn't know that it is, then it gets an opportunity to play the role of the dark side. And interestingly enough, even though it might seem like it's bad, it's evil, and it's terrible, and why would we want negativity and they do some terrible things? That, I would suggest, is just a function of our perspective because we're looking at mind, at the life, through our reactive mind, which is polarized. The mind is in a continual state of judgment. If we look at the reality out there, at a person out there, and if the person or if the reality doesn't meet our idealized standard of how that person or the reality should be, we judge it. We make it wrong. And so we don't connect the dots to see wholeness. We're in the continual state of judgment, and it just goes on like that. And so I would suggest that seeing the negativity is a bad and terrible thing, and it does, I'll admit, some rather dastardly evil things. I'm not a fan of war, not a fan of the cabal, to be clear. But in the larger scheme of things, in the perspective of oneness, where everything is a continuation of the whole, they're just two different aspects. The forces of light do everything they can to bring us into the light as quickly as possible, and the forces of darkness do everything they can to keep us stuck in fear and limitation for as long as possible. But in the greater scheme of things, The two are actually working together, and they serve as a timing agent. But in the midst of our polarity, mind-based consciousness, we miss that, and we're totally dependent upon the good guys must win, and we must annihilate the bad guys. Well, it never has worked very well, and it never will. And so the fallacy of war is that if we can just defeat the bad guys, I guess we're going to live happily ever after, and it's just simply not true. All it does is create new and more complex problems. And the whole thing, as you, I think, were suggesting or implying, the whole thing is orchestrated or has been for a long time from behind the curtain by the uh, global cabal, the global elite, for a long, long time. And so it's gotten us nowhere fast. Kept us stuck in fear and limitations, basically what it's done, and in survival.
1: Yes. And... I am totally with you. I see the purpose of a cabal, a negative force in the great cosmic play. It can't all just be puppy dogs and rainbows. There has to be negative for it to be a full spectrum experience. I get that. I guess what I'm asking is the actual members of the elite, are they other humans having an experience the same as us or are they something different at the highest levels of the pyramid? Because to have this knowledge of the things that you're speaking of, and then to weaponize it and use it against people, well, that hinders their own ascension. Because if the goal of every human being is to be ready for this ascension and vibrate at the right frequency, I accept that. But by the nature of their actions, what good is the knowledge if you're not going to abide by it? So. There has been suggestions that the cabal at the highest levels has actually made a pact with the higher source to say, look, we will reincarnate here over and over and over again. We will play this role for you so that everything has a full spectrum experience and in return, maybe they're rewarded way, way, way down the line. Who knows? But I guess that's my question is, what is the benefit? To the elite to have this knowledge, know the real secrets of the game, and then be not playing it appropriately. Some say that's the reason why they're so obsessed with their bloodlines. That's why they're so obsessed with interbreeding, because these are the mechanisms in which they have been able to quarantine themselves away from the rest of us to play that role. This kind of comes from the hidden hand material. Other people have talked about it as well. But what do you say to that? Because if, Bob, if you were a member of the cabal and you had all this knowledge, yet you were doing all the things the cabal does, you'd be cutting off your nose to spite your face. It'd be a catch-22.
2: It would be. And to be clear, Greg, they're not going to ascend. They're not going to make it through. Too much of a karmic debt to pay. Yet they are allowed to exist. Why are they allowed to exist? Well, if you take a look into our own individual lifetimes, and I'll illustrate this by telling you a little bit about a client that I had recently. Well, first of all, just to set the scene a little bit, what I would suggest and what I talk about in my books is that you and I exist in threeness. There's higher self, there's middle self, and there is lower self. Now, when we're operating out of our reactive mind, we are in our middle self and we're living life conceptually. We're really not present with life. And the reason we aren't is that we are blocked from our connection to source, which is our heartfelt connection to source through our higher self. And the mechanical mind will absolutely do that. And what it is, is in order to connect with the higher self, we first must go down. Now, going down to the lower self, which is actually a child, it's the inner child, a child of about two to six years of age, and it's the child within each and every one of us That has all this unresolved emotional trauma, emotional and for many people, physical unresolved trauma that we never did learn how to deal with in a useful conscious way. So we continue to repeat it over and over and over in ways that most people are not even aware of because the beliefs and the operating aspect in all of it lies deep in the subconscious mind, which is very much like the iceberg, 90% of which is below the surface. So, in order to begin to heal and begin to create oneness and unity in our life, we must first go down and learn how to resolve the emotional trauma that we all experienced as children, and for many people, the physical trauma. I use that to set the stage. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the client who told me in really great detail about his relationship with his father. First of all, when he was a kid, he wet the bed and dad just could not handle that. And then he had a sister, a younger sister. And he told specifically of one day when he and his sister were playing and maybe they got into a bit of a disagreement, I guess you could call it that. The kid, my client, began to take it out in ways that I guess you could say were inappropriate towards his sister. And his father came home and he saw that. And his dad just went into an absolute rage And he took the kid, and he started pounding his head against the wall. He gave him a concussion, a concussion so severe that they had to go to the doctor, had to go to the hospital to get attended to. And on the way to the hospital, the kid was instructed, don't you dare say what really happened. You say that you were riding your bicycle. I don't remember exactly what the story was he gave, but let's just suppose it was you're riding your bicycle, and you fell down, and you hit your head. And, you know, what's the kid going to do if he tells the truth to the doctor in the hospital? He's only going to his head banged against the wall even some more. So he has to go along with the story. So now the kid grows up. And how is he supposed to deal with that? You know, he didn't have any idea. So he grows up with all this emotional and physical baggage that he never had any proper recourse for, never had any opportunity to complete. And I'm So pleased to say that it all ended well, where I showed him how and gave him the opportunity to resolve, to heal the inner child so he could, in fact, get on with his life and do it in such a way where he could rediscover wholeness and completion and begin to live life as an exciting adventure rather than just something where you're stuck and going through the motions. And so we've got all of this stuff going on in our lives and incest and whatever. And then for the most part, we're not allowed to talk about that. Well, as above, so below. Thoth, when he was Hermes of Greece, is, to my knowledge, the first person to suggest that. And so it iterates out into the larger scheme of things when the cabal plays out that role for us. And so really, fundamentally, what it comes back to, Greg, is that the opportunity for us, And then we come back to this great cosmic dust cloud, this supergalactic wave that's coming in that is stirring things up and giving us an opportunity to wake up, to raise our vibratory rate so we can begin to move through these things and get to the point to where we don't need the outer reminder of the cabal to act this out for us. So in that sense, in that context, they've been playing an absolutely necessary role for us as evil and disgusting as it might seem, and doing it from the shadows, from behind the curtain, to the point where most people don't even know what the heck we're talking about. I think your audience does, though. They're a bit more enlightened than, <laughs> you know, the average Joe <laughs> Yes, But you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, you do say in the book that the cabal is a reflection of all the things going on in the individual lives. There's a lot of Sin and negativity and, like you say, child abuse and these sorts of things. And so the cabal is just a a holographic reflection of the larger whole, what's going on in the individual. And I think that's an interesting framing. Now, you mentioned aliens earlier, and I wanted to try to fit this into the first hour, but I was a big Bill Cooper fan, and you have a section in the book where you talk about the offer we rejected. And you say that Bill Cooper stated that in 1972, he saw two reports relating to government concern and involvement with alien creatures and their interference on this planet. Well, we know about the supposed Eisenhower meeting that's been talked about a lot. But what else did Bill see in these reports? And what do you consider to be the role of the Grays in this? big system.
2: Well, let's talk about the offer that we rejected first. It's interesting you say that you're into Bill Cooper because he was well back in 89, 1990, he was one of my main sources of information. And then when I became a speaker at various UFO conferences, a guy from Bulgaria, a guy by the name of Vladimir, I don't remember his last name, but you put the two of those together, Vladimir and Bill Cooper, Uh, Let's throw in Al just (laughs) just to make an interesting trio here. They were talking about stuff that most people just did not accept. I mean, I got to know a lot of people at the UFO conferences, both the speakers and the attendees. I just hung out a lot and just talked a lot and just kept my ears open a lot and just began to realize very clearly that most people thought Bill Cooper was a kook, and they didn't want to hear a word about Vladimir who was talking about the secret space program in the Germans developing UFOs in an underground base in Antarctica called Neuschwabenland? all of which I've confirmed later. But let's just focus in on Cooper. So he's talking about the offer that we rejected, a race of benevolent ETs coming in and saying, hey, you guys might want to be a little careful about those greys because they may not have your best interests at heart you know, the white hat aliens, if you will, the offer that we rejected, they came in and said, look, we'll help you out and we'll do it without any, well, just one string attached. We'll show you how to clean up the pollution, all of the pollution on your planet. We'll give you what you want and what you need. It was just an almost too good to be true scenario, yet they were fully capable of delivering. The one condition is that we give up our nuclear weapons. But you see, we were in the midst of all, first, of, it began in 1947 with the Roswell crash, which was not just a weather balloon. That was the disinformation, the lies, the propaganda, the cover-up that began. But it really did happen. And so we back-engineered, reversed-engineered all of this. And a guy by the name of Corso wrote a book called The Day After Roswell, where he revealed through reverse engineering that all this amazing technology came out of, guess what? the Roswell crash in, in reverse engineering. But evidently, we weren't able to really figure out the anti-gravity technology and how to make these UFO things work. And then with all that was going on, more crash disks and more aliens coming in and not knowing exactly what it meant and what to do about it, the US government just couldn't accept the idea or the possibility of giving up nuclear weapons. You know, in their view, we would be defenseless. And what do we do now? And so that was the offer that we rejected. And then, as the story goes, Eisenhower met in, I think, 1953 or 1954 with the Grays, signed a treaty with them, and it just went on from there. They were allowed to abduct certain human beings with the promise of bringing them back unharmed. They broke their promises. We quickly learned we couldn't really trust these guys, but We also realized that we couldn't begin to compete with them, technologically speaking. And yeah, they did give us a few scraps of information, but it just goes on from there. So, oh, there's just so many more places we can go with this.
1: There really are. There really are. I just wanted to see if before uh, we run out of time in the first hour, just the next few minutes, we could talk about the role of the grays in this system. Are they also part of the greater whole, the source, or are they something different?
2: No, everybody is part of the greater whole. Everybody is part of the souls. Everyone is a fully functioning hologram of the one infinite creator. It's just that some beings are more aware of it than others. And so there is a hierarchy within the greys. And nothing in this book is true, but it's exactly how things are. I only presented the less desirable side of the greys, the abductions in all of that. But what I missed and what has come to me since and what I included in the new book, is that they also had another side to them, in that when a planet becomes ascension-ready, now I don't know if we can get into all of this and just, how much time do we have left in the first half?
1: Oh, just a, a couple of minutes. We'll get into more in the second half, but just to put a fine point on something, stick the landing for us.
2: Well, okay, so when a planet becomes ascension-ready, and I'll cover the details in the second half of just what that means. But for now, I'll say that in the normal case, in the normal scenario, not everybody on a planet that's about to go from 3D to 4D is going to make it through. And so the question is, what happens to those who are not ascension ready? And as extreme and far out as this might sound, and I will back every bit of it up in the second half, the greys are one of the race of beings whose one of their main function appears to be to come in as cloning experts and reclone the bodies into an upgrade and to time travel the people who are not ascension ready, time travel them and place them on another third density planet where they will be given the opportunity to live their life and to go through however many lifetimes it takes to work through their karma so that they too can become ascension ready. And so it's not just me saying this. There's a book called Cosmic Voyage that goes into great detail about this, and there is also the document called The Law of One that says exactly the same thing. And so the greys, I guess you could say there's good and bad in all of us, and the so-called dark side of the greys is the darker side of the abductions. Most people didn't enjoy being abducted, but what they also didn't realize that to a great extent it was also for their own greater good. Uh, but it's kind of hard to explain that when you're being abducted, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I've never been abducted. So I've right, right. never been there.
1: Damn. Well, that is quite something. <laughs> That's a oh, yeah. We're just
2: getting started, man.
1: I love it. Before we go, remind people about your other book, your breath work, your website, and all that good stuff.
2: Oh, uh, yeah. Well, okay. So I have another book. It's called Nothing This Book Is True, but it's exactly how things are. And it's now in its 25th anniversary edition. So for people who have read the earlier editions of it, what I will say is that the new edition has 10 completely new chapters. I mean, it is a serious upgrade from the original version. And it's a perfect companion to the newer book, Catching the Ascension Wave. And so, you know, in it, what I'm doing is just presenting the entire case. I'm not saying You have to agree with absolutely everything I say. I love skeptics. And like I said at the very beginning, I've got one of the most active BS meters that I've seen. And you want to throw propaganda and just information at me? I say, good luck. (laughs) You might get some of it by, but not very much of it. And so, no, you don't have to believe every single word that I say. I'm not asking you to do so. But let's get the bigger picture here. One of the key points that I'd like to make is that I like to speak of living in both worlds, where we still are living in a third-density world, doing the best that we can to raise our vibratory rate to be the best person we can. But with that being said, we still have bills to pay, we still have families to care for, we still have a life to live. And I proceed as though that's the way it's going to be today, tomorrow, and forever. As though this ascension stuff is, you know, what's that all about? But at the same time, I'm living with the reality that in my world, ascension is very real stuff, and I'm doing everything I can to not only raise my own vibratory rate, but to help as many people to be of the greatest service to the greater good as I possibly can be. Because then and only then does it truly become real for you. If you just sit on it and keep it for yourself. I mean, what the heck? What good is it? But if you're putting it out there, it's like Gandhi said, you need to be the change that you wish to see in the world. It's not a do what I say. You have to be the living demonstration of it. And so that's what I mean when I say that. I just put it this way, that one of my favorite quotes came from Helen Keller, and she said that life is either an exciting adventure or it's nothing. And when we're just living life conceptually out of a reactive mind, just going through the motions, then it's kind of reduced to nothing. But life moves from a black and white world to a living world of technicolor when we're in the present moment, when we're raising our vibratory rate, and when everything just instantly becomes an exciting adventure. And that's the way I like to live my life. And that's the life that becomes possible for everybody as they learn to discover their innate ability to transmute energy, raise their vibratory rate, be the best person that they can be, and let's get on with it, let's (laughs) live happily ever after. And And in the interim period, let's create a heaven on Earth here in third density, where the hidden technology will be revealed to us, we will be able to replace the internal combustion engine, not with this electric vehicle nonsense, But I mean with true technology, you know, pollution-free hover cars, for example, based on anti-gravity and the free energy that Tesla tried to give us in the early 20th century. What would our lives individually and collectively be like if that was all brought out? Now, that, I say, is a function of the Great Awakening, which indeed, I am suggesting, will propel us into an individual and collective growth that will bring the entire planet along and we're talking about propelling ourselves into fourth density, where according to the law of one, that will be entering into a world that is minimally 100 times more joyful, you just name it, more joyful, more creative, more exciting, more loving, more compassionate than even your very best moments here in third density. So that's what my book is about. And I think that's worth shooting about. Yeah, you can go to my website, Bobforsell.com. Maybe a better place to go is to Amazon or your favorite bookstore and check out my books. And then if you like what you read, come and check me out.
1: Yes. Well, cheers to all that. I will say the way I've seen some of these Florida drivers drive, I don't know if they need hover cars, but uh, that will be uh, something we'll work out, I'm sure, in time. But thank you so much for the dedication. I appreciate today's conversation as I do the one we had eight years ago. Good luck on catching the wave, my man. I will try to ride it with you when the time comes. But until then, thanks again and take care.
2: You're welcome. And thanks so much for having me. And I've enjoyed it just as much as I did eight years ago.
1: (laughs) All right, guys, the return of Bob Frizzell. When we did that first interview, he told a very detailed account of Thoth and the material from, as they say, the Emerald Tablets and the Atlantean Lumerian Saga, and it was such a detailed single narrative that it just felt weird to cut into a free and plus show, so I just put it out in full and did another one that month, and I think that's why even now people comment on really liking that one. And I definitely had that point in my journey where I was really interested in that spirit science series and the work of Drunvalo Melchizedek, and stuff that really gets into some new agey territory. I liked the epic stories. I liked the sacred geometry aspects. But at this point, I think I've digested enough channeled material that I see how a lot of it has a tendency to hit the same beats. And maybe there is some big epic story of humans coming from Mars. Maybe there's a spaceship beneath the Great Pyramids. Could be, although I think it's more possible that what was meant was less of a literal metal spaceship and more of a tool for projecting consciousness or the astral body through space. I more or less think that's what the pyramids probably were for, which to me explains why there are so many around the planet with so many different configurations and styles, because if they were mechanical weapons or energy generators, I think we'd find at least a few more pieces of technical equipment in some of them somewhere. But I'm getting pretty off topic. So yes, I think this latest book is a very appropriate evolution and through line for Bob's work. This is the sort of thing I could see him focused on in 2023. And a lot of THC episodes are about letting a guest make their case. And there is a huge contingency of the conspiracy counterculture that is right in line with a lot of what Bob had to say. I'm obviously a bit more skeptical on some of this, as was pretty obvious at times, especially in the Plus Show, where it did get a little spicy regarding David Wilcock. Bob would say, okay, get over Wilcock. Let's move on. But then in the next breath, he would cite a secret space program whistleblower that is in that same milieu. And in my mind, that's not moving on. It's still the 20 and back stuff that Wilcock was all about. Maybe still is. I haven't listened to him in a long, long time. So I was kind of like, yeah, let's really move on and leave that whole body of work alone. And eventually we did. But yeah. The second hour has that very rare dose of spice that few THC episodes have, but it's all good fun. We both walked away, enjoying this, and we don't have to agree on everything. Bob would even say that it's just one layer of material that brings him to the conclusions that he comes to, so you can still get there without it. And that's fair to say, but even in the first hour, I brought up the Indigo Kids thing. I did a deep dive into that back when THC episodes were still numbered, episode 79 in 2013. I consider that very relevant, adjacent kind of material. We were talking about 10-year-olds that embodied this new wave of energy, this evolved, empathetic, telepathic, communal, awakened state. And now those kids are 20, and I'm not seeing much of it. I'd rather take the approach of a Jim Gale, improve our experience in practical ways, advocate for action right now, getting people more engaged with nature, living better lives, living healthier lives, putting a dent in the cabal's plans and pocketbook. And then if there is an ascension wave, I'd expect someone like that to be catching it all the same anyway. So I think there's a lot of compelling stuff in Bob's book, and I tried to bring those parts out in this interview. Mars, the moon matrix, the cabal, and karma. I mean, I am on the page that there is something to an ascension process, but I do think it's an individualized thing. Something more like the weighing of the heart ceremony, ascend or come back and live another life. But I'm not as on board with a rapture-like mass ascension. I don't know. It's just the way I lean when I think about how a system like ours, a soul school, a sandbox for experience would be designed. It's more efficient and more practical for each individual point of light to be on its own timeline. Yes, the separateness is an illusion, but why even be separate if your progress is hampered by or reliant on the collective process. Again, I'm no expert. Bob has done so, so, so much more research and work on these themes, and thus his thoughts have a lot more value than mine. But sometimes it's fun to do episodes about aspects of the counterculture that I have questions about, and through the push and pull, some people will come away feeling more or less aligned with this perspective. It's better than just nodding yes and going along the whole way, which is a criticism I get quite often. But I got a lot of respect for Bob. We're on the same page in terms of rejecting war and the agendas of the cabal and really seeing everything as a part of the whole and seeing a role for darkness in the spectrum of experience. I think we both agree that we're in a cosmic play, but we might have different thoughts on how Act Three. Lays out. One thing we didn't fit in that I liked from the book was this theme of thinking with the brain versus feeling with the heart, and the making of the case that the heart is an organ that can function in such a way. Usually it's sort of thought of as a symbolic sounding thing, but he points out a few recent discoveries about the heart that might suggest it's not just symbolic, but actually physiological. Apparently, there are more nerves going from the heart to the brain than coming the other way. The heart has now been shown to have its own innate intelligence, far more than the brain, its own nervous system called the heart brain. And it has been found to have a sensory organ that decodes and encodes information. The heart is a gland as well as an organ and secretes hormones that connect with the pineal and pituitary glands, which obviously are part of the third eye. So that's the kind of interesting stuff that Bob pulls out. And again, I don't know if it's a this or that when we think about the body as a holistic system, but it's still interesting. Maybe we can shift ourselves towards thinking, quote unquote, with certain organs in that primary slot over others. I think most guys know that's true. Hey, anyway. Bob is a good speaker and good presenter and a nice guy. So I appreciate how this went. More in the Plus Show for members as always. If you've been listening for a while, maybe it's time to join Plus. You get five two-hour shows a month instead of just the free first hour. It's easy. Click the link at the top of your show notes and you can get access to the Plus Show feed, which you can use to listen on any of the same old podcasting apps. Our system is pretty standard for the industry, and each app has its own way of adding private feeds to it, except Spotify. But if you want to listen to THC Plus on Spotify, just sign up through the Patreon link. You still get the full archive Spotify access, and you can pay through PayPal. Plus members also get 10% off in the merch store too, so check your email for the coupon code when you sign up. There's some really great stuff in there. I have to say, I probably have the best Saturn Moon Matrix Archon Control System shirt of anyone. And I also like the shirt of an altar with a ritual being performed, and the smoke turns into a gray alien. We're getting weird, people. I've also started putting up video clips from these episodes across. Instagram, Telegram, Twitter, and uh, YouTube, I suppose. I take one clip from the first hour and one from the second. So if you're curious about segments you might have missed, you can get a peek at them there. And I thank Soundwave for being the guy to put those together for me. Also, big thanks to Brooke from Sound Better for this cover of the THC theme music. She was on season 17 of The Voice team kelly clarkson and she's sung for people such as john legend blake sheldon gwen stefani jimmy page and now greg carlwood so she's finally made it guys let's raise a glass and congratulate her on her rise and with that it's time to check out the thc meetup calendar and see where it's all going down all right november 11th it's coming up that was the day of many events. We have the Trails Cafe in LA. We have Twisted Pastries Coffee House in Superior, Wisconsin, and a PlayStation Party Chat get involved. November 14th, people are hanging out in Squim, Washington at the Oak Table Cafe. November 16th, Whitefish, Montana. November 17th, Oakland, California. November 18th, Cape Girardeau, Missouri, and November 18th as well, Ottawa, Canada. I like it. It seems like we got a few events pretty much every weekend until Thanksgiving week, and it's cold out there. I get it. Most people want to stay in this time of year, but hop on there. Hiresidemeetups.com. Find the others if you're feeling bold, or just be lonely for another holiday season. Break the cycle. It's time. But all right, I'm getting out of here. Your move, Ascension Superwave Riders. Descendants of the ancient builder race and lesson learners of the law of one. Your fucking move.
0: Oh no. You see, the world is in random it's attached to puppet strings. Control over everything. A nine to five is trying to steal you Now don't that job seem silly Hello Can you hear me Or should I play back recordings From some spike agency Wish we were younger And free I'll be thankful Such a difference between us and the dance.